Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. At the start of the 17th century, the initial phase of European exploration of the North American continent slowly began to move towards colonization. This early, fledgling colonial movement was in need of strong, talented, and determined leaders. Let's learn more about this with the help of our friends at LibriVox. A Chronicle of Samuel de Champlain The Colonial Movement Champlain was now definitely committed to the task of gaining for France a foothold in North America. This was to be his steady purpose, whether fortune frowned or smiled. At times, circumstances seemed favorable. At other times, they were most disheartening. Hence, if we are to understand his life and character, we must consider, however briefly, the conditions under which he worked. It cannot be said that Champlain was born out of his right time. His active years coincide with the most important, most exciting period in the colonial movement. At the outset, Spain had gone beyond all rivals in the race for the spoils of America. The first stage was marked by unexampled and spectacular profits. The bullion, which flowed from Mexico and Peru, was won by brutal cruelty to native races, but Europe accepted it as wealth poured forth in profusion from the mines. Thus the first conception of a colony was that of a marvellous treasure-house, where gold and silver lay piled up awaiting the arrival of a Cortes or a Pizarro. Unhappily, disillusion followed. Within two generations from the time of Columbus, it became clear that America did not yield bonanza to every adventurer. Yet throughout the sixteenth century there survived the dream of riches to be quickly gained. Wherever the European landed in America, he looked first of all for mines, as Frobisher did on the unpromising shores of Labrador. The precious metals proving elusive, his next recourse was to trade. Hawkins sought his profit from slaves. The French bought furs from the Indians at Tadoussac. Gosnold brought back from Cape Cod a mixed cargo of sassafras and cedar. But wealth from the mines and profits from a coasting trade were only a lure to the cupidity of Europe. Real colonies, containing the germ of a nation, could not be based on such foundations. Coligny saw this, and conceived of America as a new home for the French race. Raleigh, the most versatile of the Elizabethans, lavished his wealth on the patriotic endeavor to make Virginia a strong and self-supporting community. I shall yet live to see it an English nation, he wrote, at the very moment when Champlain was first dreaming of the St. Lawrence. Coligny and Raleigh were both constructive statesmen. The one was murdered before he could found such a colony as his thought presaged. The other perished on the scaffold, though not before he had sowed the seed of an American empire, for Raleigh was the first to teach that agriculture, not mines, is the true basis of a colony. In itself his colony on Roanoke Island was a failure, but the idea of Roanoke was Raleigh's greatest legacy to the English race. With the dawn of the seventeenth century events came thick and fast. It was a time when the maritime states of Western Europe were all keenly interested in America, without having any clear idea of the problem. Raleigh, the one man who had a grasp of the situation, entered upon his tragic imprisonment in the same year that Champlain made his first voyage to the St. Lawrence. But while thought was confused and policy unsettled, action could no longer be postponed. The one fact which England, France, and Holland could not neglect was that to the north of Florida, no European colony existed on the American coast. Urging each of these states to establish settlements in a tract so vast and untenanted was the double desire to possess and to prevent one's neighbor from possessing. 
On the other hand, caution raised doubts as to the balance of cost and gain. The governments were ready to accept the glory and advantage if private persons were prepared to take the risk. Individual speculators, very conscious of the risk, demanded a monopoly of trade before agreeing to plant a colony. But this caused a new difficulty. The moment a monopoly was granted, unlicensed traders raised an outcry and upbraided the government for injustice. Such were the problems, upon the successful or unsuccessful solution of which depended enormous national interests, and each country faced them according to its institutions, rulers, and racial genius. It only needs a table of events to show how fully the English, the French, and the Dutch realized that something must be done. In 1600, Pierre Chauvin landed 16 French colonists at Tadoussac. On his return in 1601, he found that they had taken refuge with the Indians. In 1602, Gosnold, sailing from Falmouth, skirted the coast of Norumbega from Casco Bay to Cuddyhunk. In 1603, the ships of de Chast, with Champlain aboard, spent the summer in the St. Lawrence, while during the same season Martin Pring took a cargo of sassafras in Massachusetts Bay. From 1604 to 1607, the French under de Mont, Poutrecourt, and Champlain were actively engaged in the attempt to colonize Acadia but they were not alone in setting up claims to this region. In 1605, Weymouth, sailing from Dartmouth, explored the mouth of the Kennebec and carried away five natives. In 1606, James I granted patents to the London Company and the Plymouth Company, which, by their terms, ran athwart the grant of Henry IV to de Mont. In the same year, Sir Ferdinando Gorge sent Pring once more to Norumbega. In 1607, Raleigh, Gilbert, and George Popham made a small settlement at the mouth of the Sagadhawk, where Popham died during the winter. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. As a result of his death, this colony on the coast of Maine was abandoned, but in 1607 also saw the memorable founding of Jamestown in Virginia. Equally celebrated is Champlain's founding of Quebec in 1608. In 1609, the Dutch under an English captain, Henry Hudson, had their first glimpse of Manhattan. This catalogue of voyages shows that an impulse existed which governments could not ignore. The colonial movement was far from being a dominant interest with Henry IV or James I, but when their subjects saw fit to embark upon it privately, the Crown was compelled to take cognizance of their acts and frame regulations. "'Go and let whatever good may come of it,' exclaimed Robert de Boudricourt as Joan of Arc rode forth from Valcoulure to liberate France." In much the same spirit, Henry IV saw de Mont set sail for Acadia. The king would contribute nothing from the public purse or from his own. Sully, his prime minister, vigorously opposed colonizing, 
because he wished to concentrate effort upon domestic improvements. He believed, in the second place, that there was no hope of creating a successful colony north of the 40th parallel. Thirdly, he was in the pay of the Dutch. The most that Henry the Fourth would do for French pioneers in America was to give them a monopoly of trade in return for an undertaking to transport and establish colonists. In each case where a monopoly was granted, the number of colonists was specified. As for their quality, convicts could be taken if more eligible candidates were not forthcoming. The sixty unfortunates landed by La Roche on Sable Island in 1598 were all convicts or sturdy vagrants. Five years later, only eleven were left alive. For the story of Champlain, it is not necessary to touch upon the relations of the French government with traders at a date earlier than 1599. Immediately following the failure of La Roche's second expedition, Pierre Chauvin of Honfleur secured a monopoly which covered the Laurentian fur trade for ten years. The condition was that he should convey to Canada fifty colonists a year throughout the full period of his grant. So far from carrying out this agreement, either in spirit or letter, he shirked it without compunction. After three years, the monopoly was withdrawn, less on the ground that he had failed to fulfill his contract than from an outcry on the part of merchants who desired their share of the trade. To adjudicate between Chauvin and his rivals in Saint-Malo and Rouen, a commission was appointed at the close of 1602. Its members were de Chaste, governor of Dieppe, and the Sieur de la Cour, first president of the Parlement of Normandy. On their recommendation, the terms of the monopoly were so modified as to admit to a share in the privilege certain leading merchants of Rouen and Saint-Malo, who, however, must pay their due share in the expenses of colonizing. Before the ships sailed in 1603, Chauvin had died, and de Chaste at once took his place as the central figure in the group of those to whom a new monopoly had just been conceded. The history of all the companies formed during these years for trade in New France is the same. First, a monopoly is granted under circumstances ostensibly most favorable to the government and to the privileged merchants. Then follow the howls of the excluded traders, the lack of good voluntary colonists, the transportation to the colony of a few beggars, criminals, or unpromising laborers, a drain on the company's funds in maintaining these during the long winter, a steady decrease in the number taken out, at length no attempt to fulfill this condition of the monopoly, the anger of the government when made aware of the facts, and finally the sudden repeal of the monopoly several years before its legal termination. Champlain's voyage of 1603, while full of prophecy and presenting features of much interest, lacks the arduous and constructive quality which was to mark his greater explorations. In 1603, the two boats equipped by de Chaste were under the command of Pontgrave and Prevert, both mariners from Saint-Malo. François Grave, Sieur de Pont, whose name, strictly speaking, is Dupont-Grave, one of the most active French navigators of the 17th century, from 1600 to 1629, his voyages to the St. Lawrence and Acadia were incessant. Champlain sailed in Pontgrave's ship, and was, in fact, a superior type of supercargo. De Chaste desired that his expedition should be self-supporting, and the purchase of furs was never left out of sight. At the same time, his purpose was undoubtedly wider than profit, and Champlain represented the extra-commercial motive. While Pontgrave was trading with the Indians, Champlain, as the geographer, was collecting information about their character, their customs, and their country. Their religious ideas interested him much, and also their statements regarding the interior of the continent. 
Such data as he could collect between the end of May and the middle of August he embodied in a book called Des Sauvages, which, true to its title, deals chiefly with Indian life and is a valuable record, although in many regards superseded by the more detailed writings of the Jesuits. The voyage of 1603 added nothing material to what had been made known by Jacques Cartier and the fur traders about Canada. Champlain ascended the St. Lawrence to the Sault St. Louis, now called the Lachine Rapids, an extremely important point in the history of New France, since it marked the head of ship navigation on the St. Lawrence, constantly mentioned in the writings of Champlain's period. Champlain made two side excursions, one taking him rather less than forty miles up the Saguenay, and the other up the Richelieu to the rapid at St. Our. He also visited Gaspé, passed the Isle Perse, and had his first glimpse of the Bay de Chaleur, and returned to Havre with a good cargo of furs. On the whole, it was a profitable and satisfactory voyage. Though it added little to geographical knowledge, it confirmed the belief that money could be made in the fur trade, and the word brought back concerning the great lakes of the interior was more distinct than had been before been reported. The one misfortune of the expedition was that its author, de Chast, did not live to see its success. He had died less than a month before his ships reached Havre. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. I'm Mark Vinette. And I hope you're enjoying the ride. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.